Well, so let me begin by welcoming you to week number five of our current series, summer long series, where we are thinking together about the prophets. And we're calling this series The Mighty Voices, The Mighty Voices of the Prophets. Today, we reach the halfway point of this summer long teaching series. And so, way to go. You've made it halfway through. And if you're saying, I really don't like this series much at all, and I wish it would just end, well, hang in there. You're halfway there, all right? You're going to make it. But over these last four weeks, we have talked in a lot of detail about some of God's most colossal voices, some of the mightiest voices that ever spoke for the Lord. Week one, you'll recall, we began by talking about John the Baptist, and from the life and ministry of John the Baptist, we learned what a prophet is and what a prophet does. A prophet is one who speaks the truth of God without fear and without compromise. That is a prophet. Week number two, we talked about Samuel. And from Samuel, we learned that those who would speak for God must learn to listen or to hear from the Lord. So we don't speak out of our own philosophy or our own intellect, our own viewpoints or opinions. We speak out of the truths, the unchanging truths of the Word of God. Week number three, we talked about Elijah. And it was Elijah that called Israel and all of us to have an undivided heart. Do you remember his question to the Israelites? How long will you limp back and forth between two opinions? God is the Lord. No, Baal is the Lord. No, God is the Lord. No, Baal is the Lord. He said, stop. If Baal is the Lord, serve him. And if God is the Lord, serve him. He called them to have an undivided heart. And then last week, we considered the prophecy of Joel. And it was Joel that called the nation of Judah to repent, to repent for their sins, lest a greater judgment come upon them. And we learned that America needs to repent as well. And so I think you would agree with me that all of these prophets that we've considered so far, John and Samuel and Elijah and Joel, all of these were men who were fully devoted to the Lord. These were not fence-sitters. They were surrendered to the Lord. You know, I was thinking this week about that surrender in each of their lives, and I was reminded of what D.L. Moody said. You will remember, many of you will remember D.L. Moody, that 19th century uh, famed Chicago revivalist. And Moody once was quoted as saying, the world has yet to see... What God can do with a man who is fully consecrated to him. And Moody made that statement after the life of Elijah and Joel and John and Samuel and all the rest. And yet he said, the world has never seen what God could do with one life fully consecrated to him. He said, by God's help, I aim to be that man. And he did aim to be that man and God used him greatly. Well, surely the prophet that we're speaking about today was a prophet, a man who was fully surrendered to the Lord and he aimed to be fully consecrated like uh, one day D.L. Moody would as well. Today we're thinking about Elisha, the prophet Elisha. And in the life of Elisha, we are going to see the influence of a life fully devoted to the Lord You've opened your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 2. We're going to read uh, about 15 verses, beginning in verse number 1. I need to ask you to pray for me 
as we begin because between now and the time that we finish in a few minutes, I am going to say the names Elijah and Elisha together about 10,000 times. And I am truly committed to trying to not mix those up every time I say them. So you will pray uh, with me for clarity. I would appreciate that very much. Let's read it beginning in verse number 1 of chapter 2. And it came to pass when the Lord would take Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord lives and as thy soul lives, I will not leave you. And so they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets which were at Bethel came forth to Elisha. And they said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from your head today? And he said, Yes, I know it. Hold your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as thy soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha. And they said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from your head today? And he said to them, yes, I know it. Shut up. <laughs> we didn't really say that. But hold your peace. I, I know. Verse 6. And Elijah said unto him, Tarry, I pray thee, here, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And so they, uh, the two of them went on. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off. And they too, Elijah and Elisha, stood by the Jordan River. And Elijah took his mantle and he wrapped it together and smote the waters. And they were divided. The King James says hither and thither. It means uh, here and there, this way and that way. The, the waters were, were divided and the two of them went over on dry ground. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what you will, ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. Now, if you're a note taker, so you've got a pen in your hand, would you underline that request, that prayer of Elisha? I pray, let a double portion of the spirit that's on you be upon me. And Elijah said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it. And he cried, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And Elisha took hold of his own clothes and he rent them and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him. And he went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan River. And he took the mantle that 
of Elijah that fell from him, and he smote the waters. And he said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also smitten the waters, they parted this way and that way, and Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets, which were to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him, and they bowed themselves to the ground before him. So let me ask you, do you remember in the very first week of this study, we were talking about the quantity of disciples or prophets. I asked the question, when you read the Bible, how many prophets do you think are found on the pages of Scripture? And so we talked about the fact that there are 16 what we would call writing prophets. These are 16 different prophets who have books in the Bible. Their, their prophecies were written or were recorded in a book bearing their name. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. 16 writing prophets. And then beyond the 16 writing prophets, we talked about the fact that there are somewhere between 80 and 90 named prophets. These are people like Elisha, whose prophecies are in the Bible and we have their names. They don't have their own book. There's no book of Elisha in the Bible. But these are prophets that are named in Scripture so we can count them. That's how we come up with the number 80 to 90. You can literally count them by name. But then the third group of prophets that I mentioned to you in that first week was hundreds. I said there are likely several hundred unnamed prophets and prophetesses, by the way, in the Bible. Several hundred, maybe many more than that, whose names we don't know at all, but they are prophets. And you may have wondered, well, where did he get that number? I mean, I get the 16 writing prophets, that's easy, and I know we can count names to come up with the 80 to 90 name, but where do you come up with several hundred uh, unnamed prophets? Well, in large part, that assessment comes from passages like the one that we have read today. Did you notice in the passage that we read that there are references several times to schools of prophets or what this passage calls the sons of the prophets? Did you notice that? Look at it again, chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. So when they show up on, sec, on the page in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1, they are coming from Gilgal. Well, why were they in Gilgal? If you turn a couple of pages over to uh, 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse number... I've missed it. Chapter number... Yeah, here we go. Chapter number uh, 4 and verse number 38 you'll see that Elisha comes to Gilgal and it says that there was a famine in the land and the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. So here's what we know, that in Gilgal there was a school of the prophets. Then back in 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse number 1, they come from Gilgal, presumably from the school of prophets, and they come to Bethel, verse number 2. And what's in Bethel? a school of the prophets, this gathering of the sons of the prophets. And then in verse number five, where are they going? From Bethel 
to Jericho. And what's in Jericho? There's another different school of the prophets, another group of the sons of the prophets. And verse 7 tells us that from this school of the prophets in Jericho, there's at least 50, because 50 of the students come out to the Jordan River to watch what's going to happen. That doesn't presume that that's all of the students that were there, but there were at least 50. Now there's another reference in 1 Samuel chapter 19. We won't take the time to turn, but in 1 Samuel 19, there is a reference to a school of the prophets under the leadership of Samuel. Now if I just take those four references, 1 Samuel 19, um, 2 Kings chapter 4, 2 Kings chapter 2, there are at least four communities of these schools of the prophets that have dozens of uh, the, the sons of the prophets in each of these. And so you can add those together just in those four that would be in all likelihood, a couple of hundred at least, and there's no reason to believe that there were not others. So who are these sons of the prophets? Probably the best way to tell you is simply to say they were <clears throat> prophets in training. They would have been disciples of Samuel, disciples of Elijah, disciples of Elisha. They were prophets who were apprentices, if you will, to these greater prophets, and they were learning the ministry of prophecy from them. Apparently, the text doesn't say it explicitly, but it would seem to imply that they lived a communal lifestyle, meaning that these sons of the prophets, these disciples of these prophets, lived together in what we would call a commune. They lived together, they ate together, they worked together, they worshiped together, they learned the skills and the calling of being a prophet together. They lived together on these campuses, if you will. Now, some of you have been with me to the Holy Land, and if you've been to Israel uh, with us, you have visited a place along the shore of the Dead Sea, down in the desert, called Qumran. And Qumran is a place where the Dead Sea Scrolls were copied and hidden and ultimately discovered. It's the Dead Sea Scrolls which make Qumran so famous. But the ruins that are there are the ruins of a community not unlike one of these communities of the schools of the prophets. This was inhabited by a group of people called the Essenes. And they lived there in a commune. They lived together, they worked together, they studied together, they worshiped together, and, and they and, uh, uh, copied the scriptures and the Dead Sea Scrolls together. It's not unlike the community at Qumran. These schools of the prophets would not be unlike what was existing between Jesus and his disciples. Think about it. For three and a half years, the disciples lived with Jesus. Not in a house, they were on the move, but they were together for three and a half years. And so for three and a half years, they were learning from Jesus. He was teaching them about the kingdom of God, teaching them the truths of his father. They were learning as his disciples. So when you read about the schools or the sons of the prophets, it's not unlike what was happening at Qumran or unlike what was happening with Jesus. Now, here's the reason I make that point to you. Because these examples, Qumran to a degree, certainly Jesus and his disciples, and surely the sons of the prophets that we see 
in Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, and Nioth. These schools of the prophets are exemplary of what our discipling communities and relationships ought to be like. I'm talking about your small group or a Bible study group that you're in. Or maybe it's something, a group that you don't really call a small group, but it's two or three Christian brothers or sisters that you're connected with. And maybe you're thinking, I don't really have that. I just kind of come to church on Sundays and go home and that's kind of it for me. I don't really have anybody teaching me or speaking into my life in a very practical, hands-on way, day by day, week by week. Well, let me implore you to, to lean into that. Let us connect you to a group. Because those groups are intended to disciple us in the same way that these sons of the prophets were being discipled. They're intended to help us grow in the faith where the older can teach the younger and where everyone together can build one another up. That is exactly what was happening in these schools of the prophets. Now you'll notice in chapter 2 and verses 3 and 5 that even though these were distinct uh, schools, distinct communities of these prophet disciples, that God had revealed to each one of them the same soon-to-happen event. He had let all of them know what was getting ready to happen. Namely, that he was going to take Elijah out of the earth. They knew it. And Elijah knew it. He's speaking to Elisha about it. But when they get to Bethel, for example, verse number three, notice it again. The sons of the prophets come to Elisha and they say, oh, by the way, do you know that the Lord is going to take away your master today? He's going to take him to heaven. And Elisha is like, I know it. I know it. Just be quiet. I know it. And then they make their way over to Jericho. And as soon as they get to Jericho, here come the sons of the prophets. Hey, Elisha, did you know God's going to take Elijah to heaven today? He's like, be quiet. I know it. Hold your peace. Quit telling me that. I don't want to, I'm, I'm going to miss him. I'm brokenhearted over this, undoubtedly. He says, I know it. Hold your peace. They both said, both of those groups said to him, God is going to take your master away. And then when you look at verse number nine, verse number 10, Elijah says to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I be taken away. And then verse number 11 describes what that taking away was like. Here's what I want you to notice about this. That the word that's translated take away in verse 3, verse 5, verse 9, verse 10, this idea of being taken away means to be seized upon and to be snatched away to one's self. It would be as if you watched your child running toward a busy street and you ran, you wouldn't say, oh, son, please stop. Daughter, please don't run into the street. No, you would run and grab that child and pull it back to safety. It means to seize or to snatch away. When the Bible says that, they, that, that God was going to take Elijah away in a seizing kind of way, he wasn't kidding. Look at verse number 11. It came to pass as they went on and talked that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire. Uh, and horses of fire, and it divided Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind, caught up in this, this tempest, in this storm, in this fiery storm, caught up to heaven. 
He didn't die. He was simply taken away. And by the way, he was never seen again on the earth until the New Testament. Because the Bible tells you at the, as you continue to read in chapter number two that they sent out a search party of 50 men who spent three days looking at every mountaintop and in every valley to see if they could find Elijah and he was nowhere to be found. Where was he? God had taken him to heaven. Now in that translation of Elijah from earth to heaven, what you have is a beautiful picture, a very clear picture of the rapture of the church, where the Bible says that God will one day seize from the earth, snatch away from the earth his waiting church. Let me take a quick survey. Both campuses, if you believe in a rapture of the church where Christ comes to the cloud and catches his church away in a moment, would you let me know it by shouting amen? amen. We believe that, right? Now listen, we have a picture of it in Elijah. We also have a picture of it in Enoch of the Old Testament. We also have a picture of it in the book of Acts in Philip. We also have a, a picture of it in uh, Paul's writings where he tells us about being called up to the third heaven. But we don't just have to rely on images of it or signs or, or, or illustrations of it. Paul tells us distinctly. Let me read to you 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Listen, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up, lifted out, taken away, caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Behold, Paul writes, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, we shall not all die, it means, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So what you have in Elijah is this picture of the church being caught away. And may I just encourage you to know that that catching away of the church could happen today. Amen? Any moment the Lord could come. Well, this is what happens in 2 Kings chapter 2. Elijah is raptured, if you will. He is caught up to heaven. And the Bible tells us in 2 Kings chapter number 2 that when he goes up to heaven, verse number 11, that his mantle falls, floats back down to the ground. His mantle falls to Elisha. Now, you may say, what is a mantle? Well, I don't, I don't know that language, a mantle. Well, the best way to describe it would simply be to say that a mantle is a robe. It's a, it's a long-flowing, loose-fitting, what I would call a prophet's robe. It was a robe worn by the prophets, not exclusively by the prophets, but certainly by the prophets. It is a robe which denoted their office in this role of the prophet. And so when the mantle of Elijah, who has just gone to heaven, falls to Elisha, it falls on him as Elijah's successor. Elisha is Elijah's successor. Now, I want you to think with me about this, and we're going to have to go back a few pages to see it in the text, but jot it down and let's talk about it. We'll find in 1 Kings 
the call, Elisha's call to serve the Lord. Elisha's call to serve the Lord. Go back a couple of pages. 1 Kings chapter number 19. And we're going to begin, we'll look in verse number 15 to begin with. 1 Kings 19 verse 15. Here's what you're going to find out. Late in Elijah's life and ministry, um, God gave Elijah three uh, commands. Uh, The three commands that you'll find in verses 15 and 16 are these. God said to him, number one, I want you to anoint Haziel or Haziel to be the king of Assyria. I want you to anoint the king of Syria. Number two, I want you to anoint Jehu to be the king of Israel. Number three, I want you to anoint Elisha to be your successor. You'll see this in verse 16. At the end of the verse, he says, And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, you shall anoint to be prophet in your room. That is, anoint him to be the prophet in your place, to be your successor. I want you to write down this principle that all of you have probably heard before, but it remains true today. There is no success without a successor. You heard that? There is no success without a successor. This is true in business. This is true in ministry. This is true in family. This is true in every arena of life. Why? Because what we do in this life for the Lord matters. And we need to be preparing, planning for how we're going to take what God has called us to do in this life and we're going to pass it on to those who are going to come on behind us so that they can continue on the work. Now, you know, you may say, well, look, Pastor, why do I need to really worry about that? Because I just live my life. I do my thing. I'm just trying to honor the Lord. And whatever happens after I'm gone is what happens. I'm going to heaven and I don't have to worry about it. No, no, no. You can't take that view. Because what you do in this life for Christ matters. And the truth is, you will never get it all completed. You will never finish all that God would have you do or all that you would like to do in your service to the Lord. So you need others to come along behind you to continue to carry out that work. Let me give you some examples of this. Moses is an example of a man fully devoted to God. He had a great work to accomplish for the Lord, and that work primarily, or at least maybe I shouldn't say primarily, but amongst all of the primary things that he did, one of the things that he was called by God to do was to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. But he needed a successor, Joshua, to take them into the land of Canaan. Moses couldn't get it all done. David prepared everything that was necessary to build the temple of God in Jerusalem. But he needed Solomon to complete the work and actually build the temple. May I be so bold? Jesus died for the church and rose again for her justification and sanctification. But he needed the disciples to carry on the work of the gospel, to carry on the work of the church after his ascension to heaven. Paul preached the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, establishing churches, but he needed Timothy to come along behind him and to carry on the work that he did. And so if Moses needed a Joshua 
And if David needed a Solomon, and if Jesus needed his disciples, and if Paul needed a Timothy, don't you think you might need to identify who it is that you are going to hand this work that God has called you to be about? How will you hand that off when that time comes in your life? And do you know that Elijah spoke the truth of God to Israel, but he needed Elisha to come along and finish that work? In fact, it's interesting. That of the three commands in chapter 19 that God gave to him, anoint the king of Assyria, anoint the the next king of Israel, and anoint your successor, do you know how many of those three Elijah got done? One. Only the anointing of Elisha. It would take Elisha to anoint the next king of Assyria and Elisha to anoint the next king of Israel, and both of those would be accomplished after Elijah had gone to heaven. So I want you to understand that Elisha was called to a specific purpose. It was to be the successor to Elijah. And Elijah needed a successor, so do you. Now the second thing I would just point out to you quickly is that Elisha doesn't seem particularly qualified to be Elijah's successor. You know, I mentioned there are multiple schools of prophets. There are prophets in training all over the place. And yet when Elijah goes to anoint his successor, whom God named as Elisha, he finds him in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, verse number 19. Look at it. Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was behind the 12th yoke. What you discover is that Elisha is not one of the sons of the prophets. He's not a prophet in training. He's not a prophet apprentice. He didn't graduate summa cum laude from the prophet school at Gilgal or Jericho or any other one. He is not even a preacher. He's a a plower. He's a farmer. And God sent Elijah to anoint Elisha, even though it doesn't seem that he would be the one that would be chosen. Here's this principle, you know it well. God does not call the qualified, he qualifies the called. And God put a call on Elisha's life. And it didn't matter that he didn't have any experience as a prophet. It didn't matter if he had never been trained. It didn't matter if he was a farmer. He was the one that God had chosen. And in the same way, whatever God calls you to, whatever whatever you have your hands to in his kingdom work, know this, lean into that calling, serve his purposes because he will qualify you for that work. This is Elisha's call. And then you also see Elisha's heart to serve the Lord. I, I love this beginning in verse number 20, still in 1 Kings 19, verse number 20. Look at, look at how Elisha responds to this call. Elijah comes to him, by the way, sees him plowing. He takes his mantle, which eventually will fall to Elisha after Elijah is taken to heaven. But he takes his mantle on this day and he puts it over the shoulders of Elisha, signifying, you are my successor. I'm passing my mantle to you. And notice how Elijah or Elisha responds. Verse number 20, he says, let me, he ran after Elijah and said, let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And Elijah said, go do that. Verse 21, and he returned back from him and he took a yoke of oxen. He slew them, boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, gave those to the people and they did eat them. And then he arose and he went after Elijah 
and he ministered to him. Look at how Elisha responds to this call. Number one, he kisses his mother and father goodbye. He's been a farm boy. He's been working on the farm. He's been, he's been at home. And now God has called him to something, and he goes and he says, Mama, mwah, Daddy, mwah, goodbye. I've been called by God. I'm leaving. He's saying, I won't be back. I'm, I'm moving into this new life that God has called me to. Number two, look what he does. He kills two of his oxen, makes a feast, and he roasts them. But where does he get the implements, the wood, for the fire? Do you see it? He burned the plow. He took the instruments they've been plowing with, he broke the wood apart, and he built a fire. He's burning the plow. He's saying, I'm never going to need the plow again. God has called me to something different. Do you see the commitment? It's like Cortez burning the ships on the shore of Mexico when they landed to conquer the Aztecs. We're going to fight or die, but there's no escaping. In the same way, Elisha says, I'm not going back to being a farm boy. I've told my mama goodbye. I've told my daddy bye, and I've burned the plow. And then verse 21 says, and he followed after. He went after Elijah, and he ministered to him. He became his servant. Now, do you know what's interesting? Listen carefully. If y'all doing okay, shout amen. I know I'm giving you a lot of content, but listen carefully. Do you know what happens at the end of verse chapter number 19 and verse number 21? Elisha the newly anointed successor to Elijah disappears off the pages of Scripture. And he doesn't show up again for about five or six years until you get to 2 Kings chapter 2. And there he is again. And there's a lot happening in those five or six years. There's a war with the Assyrians. There's a war with the Moabites. There's a, there's a whole issue with Ahab and Jezebel. There's three years of peace, a peace trip. There's a lot happening. And you don't see Elijah or Elisha anywhere. What's he doing? If you turn over to 2 Kings chapter number 3, and let me show you what he's been doing. Verse number 11 at the end of 2 Kings 3 and verse number 11, it says, Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. Listen carefully. You know what he's been doing for five or six years? Serving in obscurity. And when he becomes the primary prophet, and they say, where is the prophet? What's he like? And they say, well, it's just this guy who has been washing the hands and the feet, no doubt, of Elijah. Listen to your pastor. Those who will make a difference in the kingdom must be willing to serve in ways that might seem obscure, unknown, unimportant, not getting accolades, not in the limelight, just faithfully carrying out what God has called them to do. Great will be their reward in heaven. God uses that service. And it's in that faithfulness, in that faithful place of just being what God wants me to be. God raises up the successors and those who are going to carry out his work. In fact, you see this faithfulness in 2 Kings chapter number 2 when multiple times Elisha says to Elijah, I will not leave you. I am going to stay by your side. Well, the moment finally comes. Look at it, 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse number 9. The moment finally comes when Elijah says to Elisha, middle of the verse, ask what I shall do for you before I be taken away from you. And Elisha said, here's his moment. Here's his opportunity. He's been serving for five, six years in obscurity, washing feet and hands, cooking meals. 
He's got his moment. Elisha, I'm getting ready to go to heaven. You tell me what you want before I go. You see his answer in verse number 11, or verse 10, or verse 9, I'm sorry. He says, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. That's his ask. Let me receive twice the spirit that's on your life, Elijah. That's what I want. And you know this prayer. You've heard this before. Let this double portion fall on me. But do you know what he meant by that? Some people believe, by the way, I'm not one of them, but some people believe that what Elisha was saying was all about titles. That he wanted to make sure that everybody knew that he was the successor to Elijah and nobody else was. And remember from verse number seven, there are 50 men who are sons of the prophets. They've been in school to be a prophet. And they're watching what's happening right now. And some people believe that Elisha is saying, I want those 50 to know they're not getting the mantle. I'm the one who's going to be your successor. They think this because the Bible does say that when a man would leave an inheritance to his sons, the eldest son, because he would be receiving the headship in the family, he would get double the inheritance of everyone else. So that would mean that if a man had, let's say, four sons, when he comes to die, his estate would be split into, into five uh, parts. The eldest son would get two parts, and the other three sons would get one part. Many people believe that's what Elisha is saying. Make it clear that I am your successor. I don't believe that at all. Several reasons I don't have time to get into why I don't believe that, but the, not the least of which is because it's not in keeping with Elisha's character. That would have been all about position and titles and names. No, here's what I believe Elisha is saying. He's saying, Elijah, God has used you mightily, and I am asking for more. What God has done in your life, the spirit of God that's been on your life, I want twice the power of God that you had. God has used you in immeasurable ways, Elijah. Our nation has been dependent on you in so many ways. You were, he cried out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel. You have been our defender to stand before God. But what God has done in your life, I am asking him for more. Elisha was saying what D.L. Moody years later would say. I want to be a life fully surrendered. God, I want you to do with my life what will bring you the greatest glory. I wonder... What would happen in your life or your family if the primary prayer that you began to pray is, God, pour out double in my life. Double the wisdom, double the power, double the passion, double your work in my life. I wonder what kind of impact and influence your life and my life would have. I wonder what kind of impact and influence Brookstone would have if, we, if it began to be the prayer of this church, oh God, for all that you do for us, here's our passionate prayer that you would pour out double your power and your wisdom and your might and your strength upon us. This is what he prayed. And as a result of that, Elisha had great influence for the Lord. In fact, when you think of Elisha, if somebody said to you, tell me the defining characteristic of the life of Elisha, how would you answer that? Do you, do you know what you would say? If, if you've 
if you know much about his life, here's what you would probably say. You would probably say, Elisha is the miracle-working prophet. Did you know that Elisha performed more miracles than any person on the pages of Scripture save one? And that one would be Jesus. But other than Jesus, Elisha performed more miracles than any person in Scripture. When you look at the life of Elijah, Elijah performed miracles. You read about Elijah calling fire down from heaven, about Elijah stopping the rain for three and a half years. You read about Elijah providing for a widow in, in, a, uh, in a famine and, and, and other miracles as well. But when you count the miracles that Scripture attributes to Elijah, you know how many there are? There are 14. Go count them, I challenge you. 14. Elisha said, I want a double portion of your spirit. Now, I'm not suggesting that miracles is the only measure, but at least it is an objective measure that we can use. And do you know, if y'all are listening, shout amen. Do you know that if you count the miracles in Scripture attributed to Elisha, Elijah had 14, prayed for a double portion. Do you know how many miracles Elisha performed in his life? If you count them, 27. Maybe as Elisha was on his deathbed, he was like, missed it by that much. <laughs> he prayed for a double portion, and in his lifetime, he almost made it. If that's the measure, and that's not the only measure, but, but if we're just using that as the measure, he almost made it in his lifetime. But if you believe God is good, would you shout amen? amen. Turn to 2 Kings 13. Let me close by showing you the goodness and the faithfulness of God. 2 Kings 13, verse number 20. And Elisha died, having performed thir- uh, 27 miracles, by the way. Elisha died, and they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming, of, uh, coming in of the year. And it came to pass, as they were burying a certain man that behold, they saw a band of the Moabites coming. And so they took this dead body and they just threw it into the grave. It happened to be the grave where Elisha was buried. And when the dead man fell down into the grave, his dead body touched the bones of Elisha. The dead man revived and stood up on his feet. Somebody shout amen. God's so good. Then he said, you didn't quite make it in your lifetimes. I'm going to give it to you in your death. And this man stood up from the grave. I'm telling you that like Elisha and like Elijah and like Samuel and like John and like Joel and and like D.O. Moody, if we will say, oh God, I want to be the man, the woman, the church, upon whom you will pour a double portion of your spirit because we are surrendered to you.